The ingredients for today's episode are La Rondine, Rendezvous, and Dubonnet. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro. We're mixing up the perfect combination. Puccini left New York on December the 26th, 1910, and headed back to Italy. The world premiere of La Fanchula del West had been a huge success, and his time in America had been filled with much celebration. Tito Ricordi, the son of Giulio Ricordi, Puccini's publisher, remained behind to oversee the productions that were soon to be mounted in Chicago and Boston. Puccini wrote a long letter to Carla Toscanini, the conductor's wife, thanking her for her help and hospitality during his time in America. Remember, Elvira didn't make this trip with him for Fanchula. Puccini wrote to Miss Toscanini, If only my own wife were as understanding as you. This, of course, was written at 3 a.m. while on board the Lusitania, while he continued his journey home. He continued the letter with his usual style of writing while depressed and probably after a few cocktails. He wrote, I'm completely alone in the world, always longing for something and never finding it, always misunderstood, and way too far on in years. After spending two days in London, he finally arrived back in Milan on January the 7th, 1911. Puccini spent much of 1911 with his usual activities, the constant search for new subjects, uh, attending premieres of his latest opera, both local and abroad, and outdoor recreations, which he really enjoyed. And that included spending time on one of his two new boats, the Ricochet, which was his fast motorboat, and the Chochosan, his new luxurious yacht, which he ordered upon his return from America. New productions of La Fanchula took Puccini to Covent Garden. Rome, Brescia, Lucca, Naples, and Liverpool. In these performances, the audience's applause showed that his newest work, with a new style that people didn't expect for him, had been received quite well. However, some of the critics proved to be a little less enthused as others. One critic had actually sent Puccini a personal letter expressing his doubts for the composer's, quote, new style. Puccini sent the letter to his agent and asked for him to draft a reply stating that all composers, including Verdi and Mascagni, had evolved their style over the years. He stated that he was tired of constantly being criticized for self-repetition and that the melodic structure for Fanchula was still very much of his own invention. During all of this, he did receive a personal letter of congratulations from the Queen for whom the score was dedicated. She even sent Puccini a lovely gift a diamond and ruby pen. Possible subjects for his next opera included Hal Kane's The Prodigal Son, which is an Icelandic odyssey, a new play by an author, Sunderman, a novel, Two Little Wooden Shoes, and Robert Bracco's La Piccolo Fonte. Another work by Gerhard Hauptmann was also recommended by a close confidant. This work interested Puccini because of the story, a poor orphan girl who is mortally ill, 
She's taken in by a village family. And on the night before she dies, she dreams of the people who have been kind to her in her life and that they have been transformed into supernatural beings that lead her to the gates of paradise. Hauptmann himself was interested in Puccini doing the work, but unfortunately the rights had already been granted to a French composer who eventually did set the text to music, but it never reached the stage. Another subject was offered to Puccini, a wordless play based on the Arabian Nights that had been running in London since 1909. Puccini looked at the scenario and decided, quote, the East doesn't interest me very much. Of course, we know that's kind of funny because in three operas, he's going to write a giant opera about the East. Puccini turned his thoughts to comedy. He wrote, quote, do you know of any grotesque novels, a story, a play full of humor and buffoonery? I have a desire to laugh and make other people laugh. His publisher, Giulio Ricordi, offered several suggestions, but none interested the composer. The playwright, Giuseppe Adami, was introduced to Puccini by Ricordi as a possible collaborator, and this would prove to be one of the last valuable services that Giulio Ricordi would do for his protege. Ricordi dies in 1912. Adami suggested a play by Quintero called Anima Allegra, and the play had been playing since 1909 and was very, very popular. The play is about a young girl who comes to stay with a family of straight-laced, snobbish relatives, sorts out their problems for them, and then presides over a gypsy wedding. Puccini and Adami met in 1912, and in grand Puccini fashion, Puccini immediately began to have doubts about the subject and the playwright. Puccini rejected the idea of Spain as a setting because of Bizet and the popularity of his opera Carmen. Flanders was also suggested, but Puccini had an instant flashback to the failure of Edgar. By August of 1912, Puccini wrote, quote, Anyone who likes Anima Allegra can have it. I don't want it. It was a great mistake. 1912 was shaping up to be a less than cheerful year for Puccini, the deaths of two close friends, and then the death of Giulio Ricordi, which crushed Puccini. After the death of Giulio, the publishing firm went to Tito, his son. Puccini continued to be pleasant to the new publisher, but never trusted him as he had his father. This was also the year that music critic Fausto Torrefranca published his 130-page book, Puccini and the International Opera. Torrefranca became the spokesman for a group of composers born in the 1880s, who set out to recover the glories of Italy's instrumental past, and who regarded the style of Puccini as a millstone around the neck of the nation. Torrefranca wrote, quote, Italy plunged ever deeper into the mirror of mediocrity, reaching its nadir in the works of Puccini, which typified the cynical commercialism of modern bourgeois society. He went on to say, quote, Only those who have proved themselves in the symphonic field were justified in writing operas, and here Puccini had shown himself utterly wanting. Above all, by his absorption of foreign influences, he has betrayed his national heritage. In a few years, he will be forgotten. Later in life, he would admit that his book was a, quote, sin of youth, but one which had the merit of forcing Puccini to consider his art more carefully. There is no evidence, however, that Puccini actually took much notice of the writings, and if he did, he could cry all the way to the bank. Side note, when Puccini died, he was worth over $200 million.
Puccini spent much of 1912 in the same way he spent 1911 traveling for productions of his operas. As he was planning on leaving Paris after seeing the Dieter Gold play La Hupalanda, which would eventually be used for Il Tabaro, he wrote to a friend, quote, I'm rather unwell and in a black humor. I fill my years. And then I've another secret reason, which I'll tell you by word of mouth. So my friends, I know right now with everything that we're talking about, it probably feels like you're flashing back to your freshman world history class. Don't worry, we're going to talk a lot more about world history coming up, but we have to in order for La Rondonnet to make sense. So I'm hoping that the only difference between what I'm talking about and your freshman world history class is the fact that in just a moment, you're going to have a cocktail in your hand. So let's make a drink. So the cocktail that I chose for this episode is aptly called the Opera Cocktail. It's a classic pre-prohibition drink, and the first time that it appears in print is around 1914. The recipe that is most commonly used today comes from the Savoy Hotel in London from the early 1930s. There are many different versions of this cocktail, but the one that we're going to make today is the most common. So you're going to need a few supplies. You're going to need the bottom part, the cup part of your cocktail shaker. You're going to need a bar strainer, a bar spoon. You're going to need some gin, some Dubonnet, Luxardo, and some orange bitters. So the first thing you're going to want to do is to chill a glass, classic cocktail glass or a martini glass or sometimes called an up glass. And the easiest way to chill that, don't put it in your freezer. You don't have time to do that, especially when you're thirsty. So just take two or three cubes of ice and a little bit of water, put it into your martini glass. Swirl it around and then let it sit while you're making the drink. So that's going to chill your glass. So to make the drink, really easy. Put some ice in your cocktail shaker. Add two ounces of gin, a half ounce of Dubonnet, a half ounce of Luxardo, and a good dash of orange bitters. Now, take your bar spoon. You, this is a cocktail you do not want to shake. So take your bar spoon and stir, gently stir the cocktail for about 10 seconds. You just want to completely chill the contents of the, uh, of the glass. And also you want to get a little meltage off of that ice. After you've stirred the drink, empty the uh, iced water that you now have in your, uh, in your glass that you're going to serve it in. So just pour that down your sink. And now take your bar strainer and strain the cocktail over into the glass. Garnish with a lemon twist. And enjoy. There you go, my friends. The classic opera cocktail. So, my friends, are you enjoying your cocktail? I for sure am. So, here we are. Back to that secret reason that Puccini was talking about. 
The Baroness, Josephine von Stengel, was the most serious and longest-lasting of Puccini's affairs during his later years. She was born in 1886, almost 30 years younger than Puccini, in a military family. At age 20, she had married an officer in the German army, and she had two daughters. Her affair with Puccini started in Paris, and then later moved, at Puccini's suggestion, to Viareggio. This also happened to be where Puccini based his yacht during the hotter months, and Luckily for Puccini, his wife, Elvira, hated being on the sea. Their rendezvous would be dangerous and would call for some clever excursions on Puccini's part. He would also spend a lot of time requesting alibis from friends who were in the know. In June of 1912, Puccini traveled to Munich for, quote, theatrical reasons. He did, however, manage to do a little work. He wrote a letter to someone requesting a libretto, quote, By now you know what I need, great sorrow in little souls. Clearly, Josephine's company wasn't distracting him from his eternal quest. Later in August, they together traveled to Carlsbad. Josephine also accompanied Puccini to Bayreuth to see Parsifal. He wrote home to his wife, quote, three days of pure enchantment. Now, my friends, Parsifal is long, don't get me wrong, but surely... He was also talking about some other kind of enchantment if he was there for three days. While at Bayreuth, Puccini was spotted by another fellow Wagner enthusiast and was pointed out to Cosima Wagner. She sent someone to invite Puccini and his companion to her box. This was, of course, out of the question. Puccini paid the person off and then sent them back to Miss Wagner to tell her that it wasn't Puccini, but instead someone that looked just like the composer. Side note, Cosima Wagner was the illegitimate daughter of the pianist and composer Franz Liszt. She became the second wife of Wagner and helped him in the founding of the Bayreuth Festival. She was also the principal inspiration in Wagner's later works, particularly Parsifal. During all of this, Puccini was still searching for a subject for his next opera. However, he did manage to compose one small little lullaby with words from his nephew, whom he had hoped he could groom into his librettist. As we will see, this lullaby would become a major part of La Rondine. At the beginning of 1913, he oversaw the premiere of Fanciulla del West at La Scala, conducted by Tullio Serafin. March took him to Berlin, and the turmoil of Puccini's feelings is reflected in his letters to Elvira. He said, quote, I'm not very well. The prima donna is a nincompoop. The conductor is a mischief maker, and they don't understand a word of Italian. He goes on after complaining about his social life in Berlin, quote, Even you don't seem to care about my worries. Nevertheless, I have only found you to whom I can write. 
I wish that my life were finished. However, after the opening night, he wrote, quote, I assure you that I have never been present at a success like this. The interpretation was really fine, and the staging was marvelous. Everybody loves me. Everybody feasts me. And the women, don't be jealous. They don't touch me. So, my friends, if you're wondering why we've not spoken a single word yet about La Rondonnet, don't worry, we're getting there. But in order for it to all make sense, we have to travel through all of this first. So, remember, Puccini wrote to his wife about the women, don't be jealous, they don't touch me. But of course, one of them did touch him. Margit Vesey, a Hungarian painter and journalist with whom he attended a performance of De Rosenkavalier. He exchanged several letters with her upon his return to Milan. This little fling seemed to have no effect, however, with his relationship with Josephine, who in April of that year got an official divorce from her husband. Puccini still had his eyes on the novel Two Little Wooden Shoes, and also got the rights to Anthony Wharton's comedy In the Barn. He also looked at several Dickens novels. Side note, he loved reading the works of Charles Dickens and would read them in seasonal rotation. He continuously wrote about not having a subject and not being able to write an opera. He was depressed. He was also afraid that after his success with La Fanchula del West, he wouldn't ever be able to write again. He often cited Debussy's silence after writing Pelias and several unsuccessful experiments by Richard Strauss after he composed Zalame. He was intrigued by Stravinsky's ballet The Rite of Spring, which he saw in Paris that summer. He wrote, quote, Ridiculous choreography, the music is an absolute cacophony, but strange not without a certain talent. But all in all, it's the work of a madman. In October, he went to Hamburg and then to Vienna for productions of La Fanchula del West. And here he met the music critic, Julius Korngold, and his young son, Eric, who was soon to release his new opera, Die Todesstadt. He also met and became friends with the composer Franz Lehár, and Lehár introduced him to Sigmund Eibenschutz, the director of the Karl Theater, and Emil Bert, a publisher of Operetta. From this meeting, Puccini received a commission to compose a piece for Vienna with a libretto by Alfred Vilner, someone whom Lehar had worked with several times. The commission fee was 200,000 kronen. It was the first time that Puccini had proceeded on any project without the help or permission from his publisher, Casa Ricordi. His relationship had become strained since the death of Giulio, and his son Tito had taken over. Puccini wrote to a friend, quote, My publisher is now my enemy. Although the plan was for a traditional operetta, Puccini immediately changed his mind once he received a story sketch from Vilner. He wrote, quote, It's the usual slipshod, banal operetta. The usual contrast between East and West, ballroom festivities and opportunities for dancing, 
with no study of character, and in short, no dramatic interest. An operetta I shall never do. A comic opera, yes, like Rosencavalier, only more entertaining and more organic. It is true Puccini had signed an agreement for an operetta, and the genre had a minor triumph in Italy. Leoncavallo had a little success in 1912, which may have had a part in his not wanting to do it. He told his niece that he would never descend to the level that Leoncavallo had slipped. As far as he was concerned, the commission he signed in Vienna was to be a through-composed opera. By April of 1914, Vilner had submitted a plot that was more to Puccini's liking. Die Schweilbe, or in English, The Swallow, or in Italian, La Rondine, had been compared to Verdi's La Traviata, but it is a Traviata where all of the larger issues have already been cut. Magda is just a kept woman attempting to live out an impossible dream. Gone is the mortal illness that plunges Violetta into a hectic pursuit of pleasure. Gone also is the bourgeois morality of Germain, which keeps her from a lasting relationship with the man she actually loves. The pair of comic lovers, Lisette and Prunier, are a cliché of operetta. Think Camille and Valenciennes in The Merry Widow. Lisette, also being a maid who dresses up in her mistress's clothes, is borrowed from Deflator Mouse. And the quartet in Act Two of La Rondinée is a throwback to the Bruder line in Act Two of Deflator Mouse. In May, Puccini wrote to a friend, quote, I am writing some rather pretty music for La Rondinée, light, but I think interesting, and as clear as spring water. Later that year, he wrote to the same person, quote, It's a light, sentimental opera with touches of comedy, but it's agreeable, limpid, easy to sing, with a little waltz music and lively tunes. It's sort of a reaction against the repulsive music of today. Meanwhile, during all of this, World War I broke out on July the 28th, 1914. War fever was in the air, and with the growing conflict, several European musicians were casting their thoughts and showing extreme patriotism. Puccini's attitude was unequivocal from the very start. He wrote, quote, War is a horrible thing, whatever the results. For whether it be victory or defeat, human lives are sacrificed. At the time, Italy remained neutral. There were strong feelings for the Allies, particularly among artists and intellectuals who had hoped for the end of Austrian rule in the northern Italian province, South Tyrol. Puccini, with an Austrian contract on his hands, became an obvious target for suspicion on the part of militant patriots. An argument between he and Toscanini that summer led to an estrangement that lasted for several years. However, this was just the beginning of turmoil for Puccini. In November of 1914, the English novelist Hal Kane asked Europe's most celebrated names for contributions to his King Albert's book, a tribute to the Belgian monarch who was forced to flee his capital by the German invasion. Among some of the names of those who contributed were Debussy, Saint-Saëns, Elgar, and Léon Cavallo. Puccini was asked to also contribute, and he put it off as long as he could, 
And then when pressed again, he wrote, You ask me for something that my spirit would willingly do, for I too have been moved by the sad fate of Belgium and have admired the heroic defense of that people led by the courageous King Albert. But I have already received requests to join in other tributes and protests from other parties. I have answered all of them that I wish to stand aside, and because of this, did not want my name to appear in public. I tell you this, asking you to forgive my reserve. In September, a protest against the Germans was held by the International Society of Artists in Rome. Puccini had not joined the movement. However, a German theatrical writer named him as one of the people who had signed the protest. Upon this, there was an immediate call for the boycott of Puccini's operas in Germany. Puccini replied to the article, quote, I have just learned from my publisher that you count me among those who have taken up a position against Germany. I am pleased to declare to you that I have always abstained from any such thing against your country. Of course, by now, word had also reached France, and his operas were being boycotted there as well. There was also the relationship that Puccini was having with Josephine. In March, her ex-husband had died on the Western Front in the war. She left her two children in the care of her former in-laws and moved to a villa in Italy that had been purchased for her by Puccini. Was he planning the full separation from Elvira? Josephine thought for sure he would. However, this all came to an end when on May 30th, 1915, Italy entered the war on the side of the Allies. Puccini was certain the conflict would come to a speedy end. In a show of faith for the French, he donated the profits from the performances of Tosca in Paris for one whole year to help fund the nation's Wounded Soldiers Fund. Tito Ricordi suggested to Puccini that he should write a piece similar to Leoncavallo's Hymn to France. Puccini turned him down instantly. He wrote, quote, I have not aptitude for occasional music, nor do I wish to come second to that pig, who, to Italy's shame, is called maestro. Then came the issue of his Viennese contract. Puccini assured Tito that this would not be hard to get rid of. Puccini arranged a meeting in Zurich. The Austrians retained their rights for the first performance of La Rondonnet, but then deferred it until after the war. All that really came from that particular trip to Zurich was a few days with Josephine, who had been banished from Italy as an enemy alien. He wrote to Elvira, quote, I am not seeing that woman. The long war has put barriers in our way. Let time and circumstances do their work. La Rondine was finally completed in April of 1916. Tito Ricordi wanted no part of the publishing of the score due to the contract with the Austrian company. Also, Puccini had heard rumor that Tito Ricordi had called it, quote, bad lehar. Fortunately, Ricordi's main rival, Casa Sagzoni, agreed to publish it. Having already invested in the works of Richard Strauss, Humperdinck, and Rimsky-Korsakov, they seized at the opportunity to publish an opera by Italy's foremost living composer. The world premiere of La Rondine took place on March 27, 1917, in Monte Carlo. The reception for the opera was all that Puccini could hope for. The press, both local and foreign, was unanimous in praising the new genre, half opera, half musical comedy, and predicted a long flight for the swallow. See? 
However, this would not be the case. The following revivals would not land well with the critics who complained that Puccini needed to decide what style he wanted to compose and stick to it. Puccini set out to revise the score immediately. The new version premiered in 1920. Finally, in October of that year, the opera premiered in Vienna, performed in German. However, the male lead was replaced at the last minute, and the tenor that stepped in to sing his part sang it in Italian, since that was how he learned it. A few days later, Puccini wrote, quote, La Rondonet went well, but I wasn't happy with the performance. I'm going to rewrite it for the third time. By 1922, his enthusiasm had changed, and he wrote, quote, La Rondonet has gone from an opera full of life and melody to a pig of an opera. The third edition was never put into circulation. In fact, many of the manuscripts were destroyed in a bombing during World War II. It's a very simple story, my friends. The curtain rises. Girl and boy meet. Girl and boy fall in love. The girl leaves the boy for her old life as a kept woman. The boy is devastated, and the curtain falls. It's one of the few Puccini operas where no one dies. So my friends, we have a couple questions to answer. By the way, if you have a question for me that you would like for me to answer, send me an email, themischievousmaestro at gmail.com. And while you're at it, check out our website, themischievousmaestro.com and go to our connect page. On there, you can put your email address in to be added to our email blast that we're going to start sending out soon. Also, you can contact me through the contact page of the website as well. Also, while you're on the website, check out our videos of our, our drinks. You hear me talking about making them, but you can actually see me making them as well. And there's some other really fun content on the website. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that good stuff. Find us, 
We want to know that you're listening. But anyway, Holly in Lee Summit, Missouri. Hi, Holly. How are you? Sent in a really fun question. Why is it La Rondonet performed as often as other Puccini operas? Holly, that's a really interesting question. I, I really don't know a perfect answer for why it isn't performed as often as Bohem, Butterfly, and, and Tosca. If I had to guess, and I'm totally guessing, I really do think it's just because of the situation and the circumstance from which it was composed, it was birthed, and then it just really never made it into the, the main line. But it, it's getting there, I think. From time to time, the Metropolitan Opera, they have a beautiful production that they do. It pops up every two or three years. Lyric Opera Chicago did a Laurent a few years ago. There are a few productions on DVD that you can see. Uh, Covent Garden has a gorgeous one. But here in the States, it's, it's still catching on. But remember, the opera is really not that old. It's about 100 years old. And as far as opera goes and classical music goes, that's still young. So give it a chance. I think it's going to have a resurgence here. And uh, so go see it. I don't think the Lyric Opera of Kansas City has ever done it. And that's your home opera company there. So uh, hopefully they'll do it soon and you can see it. I have conducted the opera once and it's, it's, a, it's a blast. It's really fun. It's different. Uh, for, of all of Puccini's operas, I can tell you from a conducting point of view, actually just from a musical point of view, it is completely different from anything that he composed. And maybe that's also part of the factor of why it isn't done as much. But once you get into it, once you really dig into the score, you find some really, some of his m- most beautifully crafted melodies. Earlier, you heard me uh, quote of one of Puccini's letters where he says that it's limpid music and it's easy to sing. Uh, I can tell you firsthand that it is not easy to sing. I am married to a soprano who has sung the role of Magda. And when I said that, she was making faces at me. So um, I don't know what Puccini was thinking there. But anyway, Holly, thanks for the question. And uh, let me pour some more thought into it. And I will email you back if I come up with anything different. Vanessa in Silver Spring, Maryland asks, how do productions of Laurent approach this very different composition style compared to his other works? So Vanessa, I'm going to kind of tag into one of my, part of my answer to Holly. Remember, Puccini revised the work a couple times. There were three versions of this work and they were all different. However, the third version, the third revision was lost in a bombing during World War II. So we, we have nothing that exists from that version anymore. And the version that is performed today, the standard performance material, is from the original 1917 production. A lot of people, because no one dies in this opera, a lot of people think that there are rumors or, or that they've read or something that in the, the third version that does not exist anymore, that Puccini was going to change his mind and end the opera differently. It's one of the few operas of Puccini's where someone does not die. It is a comedy, even though it ends sad with broken hearts and all that stuff. It, it is a musical comedy. It's an operetta that's supposed to be light and bubbly, hence all the waltz music and all of that fun stuff. However, some people do take a little liberty with the ending of the opera as Magda is breaking up with the tenor, her lover, and going back to her very comfortable lifestyle of wealth and comfort. A lot of directors think that someone should die, and there have been productions, and I have seen productions, where they have Magda walk off into the sea as she's singing that final beautiful high A flat that she floats and holds on to. 
The text that she is singing right before this happens, she is singing that basically, I'm leaving you in your grief, but you will, you will recover from this. And so I am leaving now. And so a lot of people take uh, a little different approach there and they, they want someone to die. We're so used to people dying in Puccini operas that we're, I guess we're just a bloodthirsty culture these days. Other productions, you see it updated. I mean, it's, it's fairly recent. It's a World War I opera, but you see it updated to modern times, modern dress, so on and so forth. That really doesn't bother me because people's hearts get broken today just as well as they did 100 years ago or 500 years ago. But um, what does bother me is when directors, and we're all guilty of it, but when people take liberties with something that just does not exist. I hope that has sort of kind of answered your question. And any stage directors out there listening, I hope you don't get mad at me for saying what I just said, but don't make someone die at the end of Laurent and just don't do it. So Vanessa, I, I hope I answered your question in a nice way with a pretty little bow on top. My recommended reading for this episode is a really fun biography. It's just simply called Puccini, a biography. What an original title. And it's by Mary Jane Phillips Maltz. It's a really wonderful book. I found a copy several years ago. I come back to it once every few years. It's a fairly easy read, but it really does go into some nice detail about each of his operas. It doesn't spend quite so much time on the history of the operas, but it goes into the story. And it's just a really good book to come back to from time to time. My friends, the clips that you've been hearing throughout this episode come from my favorite recording of this opera, and it's my recommended recording for you today. It is conducted by Lauren Matzel with the London Symphony Orchestra, the great soprano Kiri Takanawa, and the great Spanish tenor Placido Domingo. Check it out. It's amazing. So my friends, our time together is almost over for this episode, but one last question just kind of popped up in the old email inbox. And I wanted to give it an answer. It's from a regular listener, uh, Jan in Lenexa, Kansas. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate that. Jan asks, there are some really great arias in La Boheme. Do you have a favorite you like listening to? And is it different when you're conducting the opera? Jan, that's an excellent question. And it's a very simple answer. I love Mimi's Act 4 aria, Sono Andati. This is as she's dying. This is her last kind of conversation real conversation that she has with Rodolfo. And to me, it's so simple. It's just so simplistic, but it's so beautifully constructed. And, and the, the text is just heartbreaking. I love listening to that aria all the time. Not all the time, but I, I love listening to that aria. And when I'm conducting the opera, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the opera to conduct, again, because of this just sublime simplicity of the moment. And as a conductor, it doesn't mean that I can relax. It's actually one of the hardest parts of the opera, I think, to conduct because you're at the end, people are tired, but it's just this incredible dramatic moment that you have to pace perfectly with the soprano to just really ring and milk all the emotion out of it. So yeah, that's my answer. That's my favorite aria in Boheme to listen to. And it's my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the opera to conduct. So there you go. Thanks for writing. And uh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Join us next time, my friends, as we take a look at Puccini's dynamic trio of operas, Il Tritico. Il Tabaro starts in Paris, and then we're going to travel to rural Italy for Angelica. After that, we're going to hit Florence for Johnny Skiki. 
During all this travel, we're going to be sipping on a Mid-Atlantic Crisis, my favorite New Orleans-based cocktail, and cruising through the seven circles of fun. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.